coming up, best tyre pressures for all kinds of different off-roading conditions and also on-roading in your shiny new wilderness conquering 4x4 adventure machine with beer garden physics explanation. <laughs> Details next. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Hit me up on the website for that. Now, my attitude to off-roading is somewhat at odds with your dirt, sand, mud-loving off-road fool. Sorry. Off-roading is, to me at least, a necessary evil occasionally. You might need to do it to get somewhere for a reason, or to get out of somewhere and return home to civilization. But frankly, as a recreational pursuit in its own right, you know, off-roading, let's go and find some mud and break something expensive. <sighs> to each their own on that one. It's an excellent way to visit places where you can interact with this great nation's incredible diversity of poisonous vermin, you know, hours from the nearest hospital. And you can damage an otherwise perfectly functional machine while communing with nature in this way and making Australia less shit. Completely up to you, I guess. It's a free country, except Victoria, obviously. A couple of caveats before we jump right in on this whole tyre thingo. This report is for novices, okay? Someone who just bought a shiny new wanking tractor yes, out of the box. Something with real off-road ability, you know, low range, possibly even a diff lock or two. Four-wheel drive ute, for example, or a Pajero Sport, a vehicle of that nature, Prado, Land Cruiser, Patrol, that kind of thing. If that's you, keep watching. And even if it's not you, I need all the views I can get, so hey, hang around. Even if you're misguided, borderline, mentally disturbed and off your meds and you had a slip recently and ended up in a Jeep or a Land Rover, this report might still help you. In addition to all the other advice, though, just make sure you also carry a Jeep herb and a sat phone. You might need that. But if you have full-blown CMD, compulsive masturbatory disorder, and you've given your 4x4 a lift several inches and fitted a set of Ron Jeremy's finest 35-inch mud-terrain tyres, <laughs> despite living on the driest frigging inhabited continent on Earth, then this information is probably not that relevant to you, except if you want to talk to an ordinary four-wheel driver, someone with a more standard vehicle, about how they should adapt their tyre pressures to the terrain. My advice to you, if you have one of those outrageously lifted machines with those totally inappropriate tyres, is get psychiatric help, because most people who do all that shit destroy their vehicle's on-road dynamics and probably didn't have the skill to exploit fully the standard vehicle's off-road capability envelope. That kind of thing happens rather a lot. You know, when you first start with the off-roading caper, it seems like every aftermarket joint in 
Straya puts its hands out like this, and however long you're prepared to hurl cash at them, baby, they're prepared to catch, yeah? But the reality is you don't need that much stuff to make a fair crack at off-roading and do it safely and conservatively and even get back in time for dinner on Sunday night, which is always nice. However, the stuff that you do buy... It really matters because you want to be carrying the right stuff. And everyone's got limited resources, okay? So get the right stuff. Don't waste a bunch of cash on shit that you're never going to use. So whip yourself down to the local hardware and get one of these babies a nice long-handled shovel, all right? The long handle, of course, so that you can reach way under the vehicle and get to whatever ever malignant lump of crap under there is stopping your forward progress. The shovel as a device for off-road recovery is massively underrated. Everyone wants you to buy a snatch strap and I'd say a little bit of backbreaking labor for a few minutes with a shovel will get you out of the majority of situations. And another thing, okay, the standard jack, I don't think anyone's going to argue with this, but the standard jack in most cars is reasonably crap. So if you upgrade to something like this with reasonable lift and it's beyond strong enough to lift up the corners of a car and you can mount it in a variety of positions under suspension mounting points and axle tubes and diff housings and things of that nature, very versatile for lifting up and, you know, packing up and doing all of this stuff, okay? So if you're in broken terrain, you need to get some packing under a wheel, a solid jack is a really good investment. They last for years. That's always nice. Pro tip, don't forget the handle because that would get old. And Baden-Powell, he would be very unimpressed if he did. Uh, finally, instead of going to ARB or TJM or something of that nature, why not just whip down to the local steel merchant and get them to cut you up a little piece of 6mm mild steel checker plate. And then you can paint it a nice bright colour. We'll get to that in a minute, but... The bottom line with this is spread the load, dude, because when the jack is on some soft surface that is manifestly intolerant of bearing stress, okay, what the, the reality is that you are likely to get your jack onto some mud and start jacking enthusiastically like a friggin' 15-year-old, and all you will succeed in doing is jacking the jack down into the mud or the sand, and that's kind of counterproductive, time-wasting, ineffective, all of the above. Just not fun, really. And you're out there for FUN, so you might as well have FUN. If you put a plate like this underneath, obviously you spread the load over a greater area and you reduce the bearing stress on the ground and thus the four-wheel drive rises up in situations where otherwise it might not. I, of course, for sentimental reasons, only carry myself the number 46 King Dick slogging spanner and I use that basically as a tool for moral support and at times I can resolve conflict that might occur between me and other off-roaders who disagree with the way I'd propose to extricate my vehicle from some situations because there are a lot of well-intentioned but misguided individuals out there and the mighty King Dick number 46 does tend to sort them out so that's nice while you're uh, down there, four-wheel driving, it's often... Let me just clear the deck for a moment. Long story short, okay, we did that thing on shackles the other day, and then afterwards I went out and I met the dudes at Spares Box. 
And they're just normal car-loving dudes like me, upliftingly enough, and possibly you as well. And I had a couple of conversations with them, and they said, hey, why don't you try out our DriveTech 4x4 compressor? And I went, okay. And they're not sponsoring this episode or anything of that nature, but this is this kind of thing is the next major investment I would make in my off-road mobility if I were you. And I'll evaluate this in a later video and also talk about ways you can apply this stuff to other mobility situations like EVs, for example, which typically don't come with spare tyres. And, you know, people, all these people complaining about having a space saver spare Equipment like this is really compensatory if you've got a space saver spare and you want to use that as a last ditch flat tire solution. All right, so essentially, this is the DriveTech 4x4 12 volt compressor. Goes on the battery, okay? On off switch somewhere here, here. Even a politician could find that, right? It's got a whole bunch of accessories with it, notably. A deflation kit okay so there's a tire deflator in here which makes it dead easy to get the pressure down to wherever you want you just clip it on and do the deflation thing read the gauge Bob's your mother's brother there is of course a long length of compressed air hose with quick release fittings and I don't know about you but I rather like a quick release in comparison to the whole long slow screw because you know who's got time to do all of that I don't think an hour goes by any day where I don't think about a nice engaging quick release. And of course, uh, the kit comes with a really nice delivery gun and pressure gauge. So that's always nice. The uh, spring fitting here goes straight on the tyre valve and you can inflate at will. That's brilliant, okay? Another little bit of quick release here to join the hose up to the compressor. I get the feeling like this inline gauge that is also there, also quick released, is for a kind of lesser kit. So I won't be using that too much. I don't think I'll be using this uh, bigger, easier to read gauge. And finally, you know, one of the things that really is exciting about this is a tire plug kit because it's not much fun getting a simple puncture and being sidelined by that. And you think about it. If you're one of those four-wheel driving dudes and you haven't checked what kind of spare tyre your four-wheel drive comes with and it's got a space saver and you're in the middle of nowhere, I'd be wanting to repair the full-size tyres to the extent that they're repairable if I get a flat. So essentially, in a kit like this, you get some destructions as a last resort, and there's some plugs. There's more plugs than you'd need. There's five plugs on each one of these, and uh, there's four. There's four of these little blister pack thingos of plugs. You get an Allen key for fitting the tools if you need, if you break one of the tools. There's spares that come with them as well. Speaking of the tools, there is a split needle like that with an application tool for getting the plugs in there and sealing the problem if you get a simple puncture. And there's a reamer as well to make sure that you can condition up the hole and make it the right size to accept the plug. The plugs are self-adhesive, which is always nice, and they work really effectively. Technically, they're temporary repairs only. But uh, to get them in there, there's a little bit of lubricant as well, because, you know, who hasn't dreamt of sticking it in there with the adequate amount of lubricant? I know I have, so 
you know, in this and so many other ways. So the kit is really good from a simple puncture, mediation, repair, mobility perspective, all right? I can't overstate that. It's only temporary, but the context of temporary is if you're out in the boonies for a month, a repair like this will be fine. Not so much through the side wall or through the shoulder right at the top, but anything that goes through the tread face, it's pretty easy to fix with these. And you can even put two or three plugs in a rather large hole and seal it up that way. So these are really brilliant. And the thing I really like about this kit is it's an end-to-end -end solution, right? It's not just a compressor and you don't have to go out and buy a better valve gauge attachment. It's already there. You don't have to buy a deflator because it comes with it. You've got the repair solution. So everything that you need to do in relation to air pressures is in the box, as it were. And it's even on a nice base that won't sit down and, you know, epileptic itself into the sand as it vibrates while you go and fill up four tyres. <laughs> you won't have to do an archaeological dig to find it. Now, as I said, Spares Box is not uh, sponsoring this episode. I just want to be transparent with you, though. I'll have a link to the in the description to this kit. And if you purchase using that link, I will earn a small commission out of that, which will help the channel. So that's nice, but no obligation there. And that's not the purpose for me doing it. A compressor is absolutely the first thing you should buy after that spade and the jack to maximize your mobility because after you can deal with this really simple getting stuck the next thing that's likely to let you down is the tires and when you need this stuff you're never in a position where you can just whip out and buy it right you've got to have it with you it's like when did noah make the ark okay before the rain dude like before the rain the operating pressures need to vary according to the conditions, and you must get this right, because if you don't, disaster awaits, okay? For touring on bitumen, you know, freeways, highways, B roads, C roads, D roads, and even our predominant kind of road, effed up roads, I would be driving, frankly, with whatever pressure the placard advises. Maybe, you know, it's safe to go placard plus 10% in many cases. That's for sealed roads and good dirt roads, okay? Placard up to plus 10%. For total disambiguation here, I mean drive at the maximum loaded placard rating, okay? The loaded one. It's on that plate inside the driver's door in statistically every vehicle. If several tyre sizes are referenced on that placard, make sure you choose the size that is actually fitted to your vehicle. And for on-road and good dirt, all of that stuff, sealed roads, good dirt, placard plus 10%, Bob's your mother's brother. So let us just ballpark that at say 36 to 40 PSI. I'm talking about Typical, original equipment sized 4x4 tyres here, not those massive 35 to 37 inch ridiculous tyres favoured by the hardcore outback dickhead. Chances are you're going to spend most of your time driving on bitumen, right? Even if you've got infinite adventuring in mind, even if you are crossing the desert or headed to the Gib River Road or the Canning Stock Route, whatever, 
there's more blacktop than anything else in most of those adventures in the context of driving the total distance from your home, presumably in a capital city, to hell and then back. It is just atrociously relaxing in a modern vehicle at like 110 k's an hour, isn't it? You can easily fall asleep and hey, plenty of people do and that's a real problem, hashtag Australia, because we drive such long distances and modern four-wheel drives might as well be lounge rooms on wheels because they completely insulate you from how rapidly you're traveling through space and time and how much energy you've acquired in the process. So let's just think about the numbers here because I just went out and had a look at the mighty Triton GSR in the driveway which rolls on 26560R18s, okay? And when you measure them, they're about 800 millimeters in diameter and pi is about three. So we're not doing a mission to Mars. This is beer garden physics. Pi times diameter equals circumference. It's about two and a half meters around, okay? And at highway speeds, roughly 25 meters per second, which is the length of an Olympic pool every two seconds, that's 10 revolutions a second, like hashtag FFS, 600 RPM. See, 600 RPM rolls off the tongue, but when you think that tyre is rotating 10 times a second. And it's going to do that for like the next four hours until you stop for fuel or something. Like, come on, that is a hell of a lot of work. It's violence writ large. The cyclical loads are extremely high. So the other thing about tyres, I guess, that is self-evident, but a lot of people don't think of it, is tyres are not self-aware. They don't know what they're doing. And each little piece of a tyre is not self-aware and it does not know that it's interconnected with a whole bunch of other things that comprise the tyre. So if we just think about one little tread block up here rotating once every tenth of a second. And if you want to conceptualise that, when you blink and the world goes dark, you lose about a tenth of a second. So you're losing a tenth of a second every time you blink. That's how long it takes that tire to go around. So in that time frame, once every hundred milliseconds or so, little tread block here is sort of unloaded, 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 and then it goes slam into the road really hard, like a jackhammer, 10 times a second for four friggin' hours in the 40 degree heat, okay? The tire is supporting... I don't know, five, six hundred kilograms of vehicle above it, and that's if there's no heavy dynamic loads imposed as well from, say, a pothole or something of that nature. But ten times a second, this little tread block here is copping a five or six hundred kilogram hit. So it can feel really relaxing in the driver's seat, but not if you retire, and it's worth remembering the disconnect here. I mean, the designers of cars have done a fantastic job insulating you from all of this high-speed violence that's going on with the tyre, but those loads are very serious, and the only thing keeping you safe is the integrity of the tyre and the pressure you choose to run it at. When you inevitably leave the good quality roads behind and you hit yourself some poor quality gravel, and it is certainly out there, maybe drop those pressures back about 10 or 15% to say 30 to 32 PSI for touring on rougher gravel. 
The risk there is that a fracture from hitting a big sharp stone square on is a real risk, okay? 40 PSI is frankly a little bit hard for a tire to endure that kind of impact and you can potentially fracture the tread face with the let's call it Goldilocks wrong hit with exactly the wrong big chunky piece of gravel in exactly the wrong spot. And it's kind of bad when you do that because if you're doing 80 k's an hour, regaining control can be a real problem. The reason I say 10 to 15% here, and I do that rather than advise pressures off the bat, is that tire pressures are notionally cold inflation pressures, right? Meaning, before you've warmed those tires up by driving on them for a few minutes to slash endlessly, which is what driving through the outback is often like. So if you're at 40 PSI cold, you might be operating those tires at 44 or something when they are at their operating temperature. And you'd want to take the 10 or 15% off that. And in that case, just come back, you know, five or seven PSI for that rough gravel road. We're not on a mission to Mars here, and it's not an exact science, okay? 10% of 44 is about 5 PSI in the ballpark, and 15% is about 7. So we could average them and say, take 6 away, or something like that. This is just going to make those tyres of yours slightly more compliant in the event of a big hit. But the thing which compulsive off-road beard strokers and aggravated outback dickheads generally forget here is that the pressure alone is not enough. You must reduce your speed as the conditions deteriorate, right? Lowering the pressure is absolutely not some license for you to press on at 100 or something as the road gets worse. Like, it's just not. You must go slower. So many people take the time to get the pressures right, but they don't think about the other half of the equation, which is the speed. So let's do that now, because it's so important to drive according to the conditions. And it can seem like you're in a race, like you've got hundreds upon hundreds of kilometres to go today and you just want it over. You want to sit back, you want to set up camp, you want to have a beer, whatever. I get that. But Really, is it worth pressing on at high speed in conditions where that's a bit iffy? And I'd suggest it's not, because if we consider 100 k's an hour in your wanking tractor versus 80 k's an hour in your beautiful new $50,000 wanking tractor, okay, it can feel like you're walking. You can feel like you're just about, hey, I'll open the door and I'll walk faster than this. After, I don't know, hours of 100, 110, you slow down to 80. It's pretty slow, subjectively. But the difference in speed, okay, which is the rate at which you cover distance, the difference in speed is 20%, which seems significant, but even more significant is the relationship between speed and energy, because small differences in speed make big differences to energy. Because, you know, in the beer garden physics, parlant, speed is proportional, or energy is proportional to the square of speed. Okay, so if you double your speed, you've got four times the energy. If you halve your speed, you've got a quarter of the energy. It's kind of like that. So the difference in energy, the difference in energy from just dropping by 20 k's an hour is 36%. So if we go back to little tread block in hell here, experiencing the trip hammer thing every tenth of a second, the hardness of the hit, whatever it is down here, when that tread face hits the road, it's 36% softer 
at 80 k's an hour, right? And that is quite significant. And of course, then some genius is always going to say, every time I bring this up, they say, oh, that's going to take me friggin' forever to get where I'm going. Let's talk about that. This is a very common road sign in Australia. I've seen that one a lot. And so the hell have you, okay? Shit road ahead, next 200 k's. And the options are 100 k's an hour, or 80, and lower risk with 80, lower risk of a blowout, lower risk of a puncture, lower risk of essentially everything, all right? So obviously, if you've got 200 Ks to go and you're doing 100 Ks an hour, that's going to take you two hours, right? Pretty simple. If you're doing 80 and you drive for two hours, you go 160 Ks, all right? You've got 40 to go and you're doing 80. So that's gonna take you another half an hour. So 30 minutes of your time, roughly, an episode of Gilligan's Island. And if you'd like to let me know in the comments, Ginger or Marianne? That's one of those big questions in life, isn't it? I've always been perplexed by that, but correct answer, Marianne, obviously. But let me know in the comments what you think. Uh, half an hour, okay? That's if you don't crash, if you don't have a blowout, if you don't suffer some other kind of damage stemming from pressing on at too much of a high speed for those conditions. And you've let a little bit of air out of the tyres to make them more compliant. Might be a good idea just to slow down a little bit. And you're not in a race, right? You're out having fun, presumably, on holidays, experiencing the great Australian fuck all. Kindly note. I did not just say, drop those pressures the instant you see a dirt road. Don't do that. My approach to this stuff, and occupational hazard, I have done a shitload of off-roading. Just never joined the stupid hat boy band. I've driven across the continent, through the centre, along the coast, north to south, south to north, Cape York, the Gibb River Road several times. I was on the Calvert Centenary Expedition in the 90s, you know, through all of those deserts in Western Australia. My approach here is just to keep the pressures at whatever they are for normal touring and then reduce them only if required when the conditions deteriorate. And trust me, they will. If you're on a good dirt road, drive at highway pressures, but absolutely scan the road, right? Because there's all kinds of defects in even good dirt roads, okay? Defects you don't want to hit, big rocks, okay? Potholes, things of that nature. And pro tip, if you see one of those, don't look at it. Plan your route around that thing, okay, whatever it is. It can be a kangaroo in the middle of the road. In the city, it can be a child who just steps out or a pedestrian who's fixated on their phone, whatever. Anytime there is a target, do not get fixated on it. Don't look at it because you will hit it. Plan a route around and then look at the route around the target. You always drive instinctively at what you're looking at. And in these stressful situations, your ability to think goes to zero, basically. So you've kind of fall back on your training. So what I'd strongly suggest you do is keep planning these routes around whatever so that it becomes a habit when the stress is really upon you and you see something at the last minute. You've got to plan what to do because then when it's really stressful, you'll react and do that, okay? It's just like anything else, learning to fight, learning boxing, something like that. 
When you get to that rough dirt road, finally, the conditions deteriorate, it is absolutely time to lose that 10 to 15% to deliver that greater impact resilience, because frankly, it's much more likely in those situations. It's absolutely not like, well, the bitumen's ended here, we must deflate. It's like, Jesus, this road's getting a bit rough. Perhaps we should stop somewhere safe and get out the billy and boil that and take six pounds out all around while we're doing it. Now, when you finally get into proper off-road stuff, you know that rough stuff, the climbing, the rock shelves, the steep whatever, through a creek, 25 PSI is generally okay for that on most OE-sized tyres, right? If you need to do that, meaning if the vehicle's not responding particularly well with the tyres pumped up to those sort of rough dirt road pressures. People tend to think of off-roading as pretty severe on tyres, but really it's not because the speeds are low and therefore the loads are low and the cyclic loads on tyres are really low because you're not going that fast, okay? So the loads are not that severe when you're off-roading, at least not if you do it conservatively. Not severe on tyres, okay? Highway and dirt road driving is the most severe conditions imaginable for those tyres. We really do just have to do a little bit of physics this time. There's a little bit of applied physics in this one, all right? So you can imagine that there is this weight on the tyre and the tyre presses back because Isaac Newton said so famously, law of motion number three, forces come in pairs, okay? Action and reaction equal and opposite. Gravity presses down, mass times gravity presses down on the tyre the tyre pushes back because, hey, the four-wheel drive doesn't fall through the road, all right? And if you let the tyres out, it's a matter of common experience that they sink down a bit, right? With radial tyres, the growth is lengthwise, okay? They grow this way. They don't bag out to the side like a balloon with a fat man sitting on it or something. They grow lengthwise. So the road rises up like this relative to the centre of the wheel, all right? And the reason that happens is because pressure equals force over area. That's pretty simple as well. Most people who are awake at school got to learn that one. It means force equals pressure times area. So in each one of these cases, we're going to reduce the pressure. We're going to drive at 40 on the highway, all right? Then we're going to drop down to 32 for a sort of rough dirt road. And then when we're doing proper off-roading like rock shelves and things of that nature, we're going to go down to 25 and the contact patch gets a little bit longer and there's more engagement of the tread with more of those features that you're trying to get over. And then we go for soft sand or mud or something, and you might drop down to 16, which is pretty much the safe lower limit for that kind of really soft underfoot terrain, all right? But last ditch effort, you could go to 12, okay? If you're really monumentally stuck in mud or sand or something of that nature, it's okay to go to 12 just to get out of it, but you've got to be really careful about not rolling the tire off the wheel. So there's that. And in each one of these cases, the length gets bigger, yeah? The width stays the same, so the area increases, okay? Force is pressure times area. It's the same force in every case. When we reduce the pressure, because the force is the same, it's got to oppose gravity, right? When we reduce the pressure, the area has to get bigger. Otherwise, we have to rewrite physics and that takes so long and it's so inconvenient. We have to change the way everything works and that's basically not allowed. There's 
Another way of thinking about this, though, it's the same thing, but we're thinking about it instead of mass and being an opposing, you know, the the force of gravity with the reactive force of the tyre. Let's think about the tyre's interaction with the ground below it, right? That's pretty serious as well, because in soft stuff like sand and mud, there's this thing called bearing pressure, okay? So if you want to build your house on clay, you have to put big reactive concrete footings in, big in area, so that the weight of the house doesn't make the house fall through the clay and you just end up, you know, come home one day and you've got, you're looking at the tiles. There's grass all around and you're just looking at the tiles on the roof. That's bad, okay? So you make the area bigger because the clay that you've built the house on has a certain bearing pressure limitation, Okay, so let's just think about bearing pressure is the tolerance of a surface to being pressed, all right? Pressure equals force over area. So the force is known. If you're building a house, you can figure out how heavy it is. And if the bearing pressure, the acceptable level of bearing pressure is known, you can come up with the area of the footings that stops whatever the hell you're building falling down and being submerged in the ground eventually. This is the same thing when you drive on sand, right? There is a tolerance of a particular piece of sand to pressure above it. And if you increase the area of the tyres, okay, you reduce the pressure. We're making the area bigger. The force is the same because, hey, gravity hasn't changed recently. Therefore, the pressure is dropped by increasing the area. This is the strategy at 16 PSI for the sand or the mud or whatever, and it's the last ditch, get out of jail free, hopefully, strategy at 12 PSI as well. We're reducing the pressure to increase the area. The force is the same, reducing the pressure on the substrate that the tyre is sitting on. And that is so frigging important to remember. But do not forget, 16 is the lower limit for normal driving on sand and mud. Only use 12 to get out of jail free. Or if you've got those stupid big tyres fitted, they can tolerate often much lower pressure because the dynamics are just different. There's more sidewall. The other thing to remember with the sidewall bizzo is if you opt for the 20-inch wheels, all right, you get those big wheels with the low-profile tyres. The reason they're not so good for off-roading is because there's not the same capacity for lengthwise expansion because the sidewalls are thinner and you don't get as much effective compression of the sidewall to give you the additional length. And that's why they always fall apart in sand and mud because you just can't make enough difference to the area to increase your tractive effort in those very challenging situations. Always, now note that word, always reinflate if you are going back to some higher speed mode of operation, even if only for a few minutes. You've got to take the time, break out your compressor and add the requisite air because not doing that is just unacceptably dangerous, right? And you should not take this risk because the risk is out of proportion to the impost in time, the inconvenience of pumping back up, right? When you get through some really soft bit of mud or a really boggy piece of quicksand or something and you're at 12 and the sign ahead says cock of a road next 200 k's or whatever, as it often does, inflate back to 32 to 35. If it's a rough road or go the full way back up to 40 if you are back on the highway. 
If you are doing some more low-range FUN because you, I don't know, want to break something expensive and help keep the dealer principal's children in private school so that they can become stoners with impeccable manners, just pump back up to 25, whatever. But don't just lower down to 12 or 16 or something and keep going like that because we're in the bush, dude. Never drive out of the forest, for example, at 25 psi after a spot of off-roading and then drive down the highway at like 100 k's an hour for half an hour because you, I don't know, urgently need three burgers and two litres of coke just to feel civilised again. We should talk about one of the biggest risks involved with operating tyres at reduced pressures, okay? And to do that, we have to jump into the beer garden and unearth a dead French dude named Pascal shoot him, I'm just the messenger. Uh, Pascal basically said that when you put pressure in a bottle, it presses back against the walls of the bottle, and the pressing back is at 90 degrees to the wall in every place. So there's all these micro forces, billions and billions of micro forces acting on the inside of the tire at 90 degrees to the wall of the tire. And then you have to think about, well, what keeps the tire on the wheel? And for most OE tyres, I'm not talking about those off-road specialty tyres that they actually screw through the wheel into the tyre, I'm talking about normal sort of road duty tyres, it's just air pressure doing this. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone fit a tyre, but there's a typically loud popping sound that occurs when the bead seats. So this is the bead area, this is the rim, and this is the top of the tyre. And it's a press fit in here, okay? And when you inflate the tyre to fit it, if you're a tyre fitter, it goes pop and you know that the bead is seated. So the only thing really keeping it there for three years that you own those tyres is air pressure, okay? And when you let half the air out or more, there's only about half the restraint force, which is a problem if you go and enthusiastically corner or even if you fall down into a rut, you know, and you, the, the, the vehicle sort of lurches sideways into a rut at lateral shunting manoeuvres, are particularly likely to break this bead here away from the rim and dump all the air out, okay? And if it happens on the outside of the tyre, you can fix that on location often. But if you break both beads, if you unseat the tyre both ways, that's a real problem to refit. Anyway, let's talk about going around a corner, okay? Because a cornering force like this, your head goes like that in a corner, same thing, same sort of phenomenon, acts on the tyre. The tyre and the wheel, for example, is rigid, so you can just transfer the force anywhere. That's called the principle of transmissibility for forces. So... You've got this force pushing the wheel this way. And Newton said that forces come in pairs, okay? So there's a reactive force on the part of the tyre because it's still gripping the track, more or less. So there's a reactive force this way, and it tends to separate the wheel from the tyre, okay? So that's why you've got to drive conservatively at 25 or 12 or 16 psi, something like that, because you don't want to unseat the bead. That's the principal risk. There's another risk, though, with the cornering, which is that at low pressures and cornering forces, more of this sidewall gets exposed to whatever might be sticking out of the track here, okay? And sidewall punctures turn tyres into garbage. They're just throwaways if you puncture the sidewall. So you are more vulnerable to sidewall damage from puncture if you are cornering in a tyre with reduced pressures. And you need to bear both of these things in mind 
and drive conservatively. And hey, I know, on sand, it's cool fun to rip down off a dune and put in a bunch of lock and spray a big rooster tail of sand up. It's, It's great fun to do that, but you always end up with the bead unseated and you can fix that, but it's not great fun. I've had fun. This is absolutely not that. The other problem is if you get back on the highway, okay? at 25 even, or 16 or 12, because the sidewall is going to flex when that high speed cyclical hammer starts to hit the tread blocks. The weight of the car is gonna cause much more flexion in this sidewall area at reduced pressures. And you know what happens when you bend something backwards and forwards rapidly, it just gets hot. And it fails. In the case of the sidewall, the material just reaches the limit of its high temperature endurance. It falls apart. All the air gets dumped out at high speed. You're doing 100 k's an hour. The vehicle lurches sideways one way or the other. The other four tyres aren't doing too well gripping the road either at this point. So this is a very dangerous situation to be in. And that's why you should never rationalise away. Oh, I've just dropped the tyres a bit and we've only got to go a few minutes up the road and then it'll be burgers and the kids are hungry and whatever. Don't succumb to that. When you get out of these off-road conditions and you're going back on a main road get the pressures back up to their operating pressures and just tell the kids to suck it up. It's not like, hey, they're not in Gitmo, right? They're out enjoying the bush with you. Jeeps and Land Rovers in this situation, they protect you from any risk of this nature by breaking down while you're out of mobile range in the bottom of a ravine. You could think of it, I guess, as a safety feature. The risk here, okay, of not reinflating is that 40% or something of the required air is missing. If you're at 25 and you need to be at 40, 40% of that air is gone. That's not insignificant. It's not just a small amount of air. It's not only 15 PSI, mate. It's 40% of the air that the tyre needs to operate safely at that speed. One final pro tip in relation to this whole compressor operation thing, and obviously... When you get these connected, all right, red goes with positive, black goes with negative, it's how automotive things roll, that's not the pro tip. When you get it connected to the battery, and before you switch it on, just double check for me, will you, and make sure that your engine is running. And keep it running the whole time the compressor is filling up each tyre on the four corners of your four-wheel drive, because flattening the battery, which is, of course, the risk you run if you are too stupid to run the engine during this process, it's like a zero-sum game, right? Because all you're doing is exchange. You're exchanging some partly flat tyres for a partly flat battery. And in the context of off-road experiences generally, I think I'd have to say that, amazing as it sounds, that one is below average because what's the position you're going to be in right the sun is going to be setting inexorably into the west and then all you'll be able to smell is the omnidirectional rise up and infusing of the air with a thousand eons of dingo piss right around your campsite in every direction and then you'll think oh human help i must get help where is the nearest habitation and you'll look around and then that's right you'll hear it just over the crest symphony in banjo flat (laughs) yes i am sensing 
an unsolicited invitation to dinner as something of a special guest. And I don't know about you, but I've been practicing for social isolation my whole life, and here it is. I see no reason to change now. In the context of interactions, I'd be swiping right on that one if I possibly could. You know, it's true what they say about adventuring. It really is a jungle out there, and you really do need to be prepared.